Welcome to Hack to Start, a podcast focused on interesting people and the innovative ways they achieve success. I'm Franco Variano. And I'm Tyler Copeland. Each week we speak with a new guest about how they created, hacked, and hustled their way to the top and distill their insights and experiences for you. The path to success isn't always linear. Hack, start, and repeat. This episode is brought to you by Breather. Find beautiful, practical spaces that you can reserve on the go. Ghost, a simple, powerful publishing platform that allows you to share your story with the world. And SoundCloud. Hear the world sounds. You're listening to episode 52 of Hack to Start. This episode features Sandy McPherson, the founder and CEO of Quib, a professional network that enables you to share what you're reading. Tyler and I wanted to invite Sandy onto the show to share her insights and experiences as an entrepreneur building products for professionals. With a background in science and sustainability, Sandy decided to transition into startups and move to Silicon Valley. As an outsider, she gained lots of insights into what makes great social platforms and how to build online communities for professionals. This is going to be an amazing episode you won't want to miss, so let's get to it. Hey, Sandy. Thanks for being on the show today. Of course. Great to be here. It's, it's great to have you. I mean, we've been looking forward to uh, speaking with you for a while and find out what you're working on at Quib. Yeah, yeah. No, it's, um, it's fun to do things like this. It's fun to, uh, to share my story. Absolutely. So let's, let's find out more about you and, and that story. So where are you from? What did you study? And, and how did your passion for entrepreneurship uh, really develop? Sure. Um, So I started, uh, my exposure to being an entrepreneur um, initially was through my dad. Um, So my dad, since I was in, I would say, high school, has always sort of done his own thing, started his own companies. Um, And so I think that was a really big impact on me when I was younger, was seeing somebody um, make their living and spend their time in a way that they were fully in control of and they were creating value as as they thought best. He actually lived um, in San Francisco in 99, 2000 and went through some of that with a photo startup. And so that's always, I think, been um, part of what's opened up the possibility of being an entrepreneur to me. Um, But yeah, otherwise I'm from uh, Eastern Canada. I'm from Nova Scotia. Uh, The capital city there is Halifax. So I'm from uh, just a, a small town just outside of Halifax. And I started, um, in school I actually studied science. Um, And my undergrad, I ended up focusing on geochemistry. And once I graduated, I knew that I wanted to do things associated with science in some way, but I couldn't quite figure out um, what I wanted to do in grad school. So my first job after my undergrad was working for the Canadian federal government, um, which uh, in the environment department, which is called Environment Canada. And that was fun. It was interesting. I worked on a bunch of um, pollutants in water and air projects. I got to travel around. And when I finally finished working, I decided to go back to school um, and do an MBA. And at that time, uh, corporate social responsibility and sustainability was was really big. And I thought mm-hmm. that would be a great way to use my um, environmental um, experience. That's cool. And so, you know, what was that transition like sort of from the academic background and in the sciences into kind of, you know, the tech industry with with the MBA and and some of the stuff you did uh, uh, following following some of your uh, your academic stuff? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely not the the standard sort of resume that you hear from a lot of people here um, in the Bay Area. 
Um, but uh, for me, a lot of it was, uh, it happened when I was doing my MBA. And I went to do my MBA and I realized sort of partway through that the whole sustainability angle wasn't really going to work out and that I wasn't really that um, interested in it as I initially thought. Um, and so plan B has had always kind of been tech and entrepreneurship. And so luckily for me, I realized this halfway through my MBA. So I spent the second half taking more uh, like tech strategy classes, design thinking, um, entrepreneurship classes. And I also started um, hanging out at some... Uh, Toronto startup events and startup meetups. Cool. Um, so that was really interesting. Um, and that was sort of the my first introduction into into that world until uh, I moved down to the Bay Area uh, almost four years ago now. That's awesome. And so I also noticed that, you know, while you were in school, you actually had an internship in New Zealand. I'm not sure if that was related to the travel you talked about, but can you tell us a little bit more about, you know, what you did there and what that experience was like? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, New Zealand was really great. It was funny, I didn't realize until I signed up to do this internship um, over the summer. And then I was kind of like, wait a minute, that means it'll be winter in New Zealand. Um, so it wasn't the the <laughs> most, uh, wasn't it wasn't the best time to go to New Zealand, but um, it was still nicer than Toronto's winter. Oh, sure. um, so it was, uh, it was fun. Um, but yeah, so I went there, I worked for the uh, New Zealand Green Building Council. And so they're the ones in the US, the equivalent is um, LEED, um, where they do certification and specifications for green building codes. Um, and so I was working on the, the business case for creating a new residential um, specification. They had one existing for commercial buildings and I think some types of factories and some educational facilities, but they hadn't yet rolled out a residential um, specs for, for New Zealand. So I worked on um, the business case around that. And so that was a really great introduction into some of the, the business sides of um, sustainability. And um, also it was, it was interesting because it allowed me to spend some time drawing on my time in government and figuring out, okay, how do you get all of these different stakeholders from industry, from private companies, from the government to all play nice and work together and actually create something. Mm-hmm. I, I've had some of those challenges as well. It's a it's a lot of fun working on that kind of a puzzle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> fun. 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 It's a loosely de yeah. loosely defined term. Yeah. So, what were some of the things that uh, that you did after that internship? I mean, uh, I kind of saw from your LinkedIn that you started to manage, you know, different types of online communities. But what were some of those jobs, and what was your approach at that time towards kind of uh, managing and developing a, a, a community? Yeah, so I didn't realize, I, I took on a job, uh, a part-time job while I was doing my MBA um, that was working for, I think it was called like the research and innovation department of the university. Um, and the I, it was a partnership with government um, to get water scientists to hang out together online and to learn from each other about how they could create plans to manage the water inside of their watershed as it relates to climate change. So climate change is coming, it's gonna impact water levels, what do we do? Like, let's all learn from each other, share resources, talk to each other about it. Mm -hmm. um, and so what's interesting is that at the time, because I was living in this sort of like science government world, I didn't really think of it as an online community as I think a lot of 
um, tech professionals would think about it. Um, but I definitely, looking back on it, at the time I didn't really think that I had learned anything because it didn't work. And so at the time it was just sort of frustrating because it didn't work. But now that I've spent some more time working on a similar problem in tech, I, I can look back on it and understand why it didn't work. Some of the things were, you know, people were forced to be there. It was this government-mandated government thing that they had to create, like, an action plan. Um, some of these people were literally trying to use the site from a satellite modem in, like, a shed no in bad. northern Ontario. <laughs> where, so it was just really, really bad. Um, and at the time, um, yeah, it, it just didn't work. And it was um, – I couldn't quite figure out why because I didn't really have – um, a really solid understanding of online communities and how people interact um, with other people online. So it was, it was also something around at that time, I mean, yeah, this was probably five years ago, for these types of professionals talking to each other through some new online product was really strange. And for them to do that was, it was completely non-existent behavior otherwise in their lives. And so I was asking them, uh, to do a lot, and at the time, I didn't, I didn't quite recognize the barriers that existed for them. Mm -hmm. that, that, that's crazy. Yeah, it was, it was really hard, and yeah, it's it's funny now, like looking back on it, I can kind of extract some lessons. Um, but at the time, it was it was really hard. So today, you're currently the founder and CEO of Quib. So what is Quib, and what did what motivated you to start it? Yeah, um, so I've been working on Quib for a couple of years now, um, and Quib is a professional network to share industry news and analysis with your colleagues and other people who work uh, in your industry or in a similar role as you. And the current focus is mostly tech, uh, startup professionals, some media people, and also uh, folks working at uh, agencies. And so I, I came to Quib in kind of a roundabout way, but when I moved down to the Bay Area um, almost yeah, four years ago now, um, I worked on a bunch of other products first. And none of them worked. So none of them got to a point of having more than, say, 50 people using them, um, trying it out and seeing what it was and me trying to sort of iterate on what the product would be. And the, the final of those products that I worked on was a social tool uh, for teams at, at work. So it was meant for um, sharing bookmarks with people on your team. And it, it kind of sort of worked, or it seemed like it had some potential, but the, the product itself wasn't quite the right um, product to meet this need that I had sort of identified in these people. So at the same time, uh, since I was so new to tech, everything seemed uh, really new to me and all of the behaviors that professionals who are working in tech had, I thought were all really novel. And one of the things that I thought was really interesting was how tech professionals use Twitter almost like a social RSS product where they uh, both share links and get content from other professionals who they maybe don't know, have some loose connection with to get an understanding of this, this person, they're really great in their field, I really want to learn from them, I'm going to follow them to see what they're reading and what they think about what it is that they're reading. And so Quib sort of came out of um, taking that and matching that with the previous sharing links for work um, product to become what it is today, which is, yeah, finding, finding professionals like yourself um, in your industry, in a role similar to yourself, to get content and to have um, conversations around that content. Oh, it's a really cool concept. So what is it like um, growing a social network product for professionals? 
Yeah. So, um, so like all things in startups, um, it's really, really hard. Um, so I, I think there's, when you think about social products as a category, all social apps that are, or a lot of the social apps that are really successful start with a really young um, demographic. And they also often start with some sort of um, visual-based um, content as, as the object that's being shared in the network or shared on the platform. And so um, versus what I'm doing, which is not young people and no visuals being shared. And so part of the reason that it's so hard is that professionals, first off, are, are really protective over the connections that they have. And they're, they're not excited to just randomly invite their entire address book to check out a new app. And they're not interesting in, interested in, hey, everybody, look at this cool picture that I made with this new product. Um, so it's a much more difficult um, ask to get, to get right. I think there's also um, there's something inherent with social products themselves. I had a, an interesting conversation with somebody about this last week where if you think about um, existing social products, they exist on some, some sort of a spectrum where on one side you have more community-based products, so things that look more like leaderboards or forms, so something like Reddit. Um, and in products like that, everybody sort of clusters together. And there's a few pieces of content, visual, text, whatever the content may be on that platform, where everybody sort of clusters around those and all of the interactions happen around that one piece of content. And then on the other side of that spectrum, you have network-based products, where each person's experience with the, with the product is unique and novel, and it's based solely on their graph and which other people they have in their network. And in that case, it's a lot more difficult to ensure the type of experience that you want because you have very little to no control over how those interactions are happening and how each person impacts all of the other people inside of the product. Um, and so I think, yeah, in terms of a spectrum of social products, there's, um, there's that that exists on top of with a professional social network, you also have the added difficulties of um, what I was talking about in terms of young, young users versus a more professional base. Um, and so it's, um, I think in terms of social products, I, I seem to have somehow chosen the most difficult, um, type to actually, <laughs> um, build and grow and scale. And I think that, um, what you have to do is you just have to know that going into it. It's something that I sort of learned as, as I went about it. Um, and you have to enable the features and build sort of some of the levers inside of the product so that you have the best chance to encourage the interactions and the experiences that you want your users um, to have. That's some really interesting insight. I never quite thought of it that way. So yeah, yeah, it's really it's it's funny. It's I mean, it's a type of thing that you only hear from people who actually work on social products, um, which these days is is not so many. Mm -hmm. So just a year ago, Quib raised a seed round of eight hundred thousand dollars from some pretty awesome investors. What was that process like? And do you have any tips on raising a seed round that you share with other entrepreneurs? Sure, yeah. Um, so I raised money from um, a few institutional investors. Um, so I have um, some money from Betaworks. They're based out in New York. Um, Bloomberg Beta, which is also, um, they have a partner in New York, but they're more so based here in San Francisco. Um, Lightbank out of Chicago. Uh, Tradecraft also out of San Francisco. And Slow Ventures, which is um, San Francisco based as well. 
and some angels, uh, so people who are uh, ex-News Corp, ex-LinkedIn, ex-PayPal, uh, SurveyMonkey, um, so some really great people from the tech and media industries that have all been really great in, in helping me to work on Quib. So I chose to raise my round in a non-traditional way. Um, all traditional seed rounds, um, people don't really talk about it because there's not really any point in talking about it, but um, how they work is you raise your money based on private interactions with investors. So you email an investor, you have a phone call, you meet them in person, and all of those interactions happen in quote unquote a private type of way. And as you go about that process, you're actually not allowed, not that you ever would, but you're not really allowed to tweet about it or write a blog post about it or do anything um, public around that fundraising process. And that's a, based on um, some pretty strict SEC uh, regulations. And so all of that um, changed um, a couple of years ago um, when the Jobs Act came out. And about six months before I raised my round, so about a year and a half ago, um, there was a change that meant that um, any company that was raising money could actually publicly announce, hey, I'm raising money, who wants to invest in my company? And so going about it in that way is called general solicitation, so publicly soliciting for investors. And so that meant that I was able to do that. And so that's the, the method that I chose um, to raise my money. And what that meant was that I was able to write a post on Quib and announce to all of the members, hey, everyone, I'm raising money. Um, and so up, up until the Jobs Act change, um, that wouldn't have actually been legal. Mm -hmm. And I would have been in a bunch of trouble with the SEC. Um, and so the idea there was who better to be an investor in my company than the people who actually create the content that's on the platform and the people who actually use it every day as their de facto um, industry news source. And so I was, I was pretty um, upfront with everybody and said, you know, hey, I'm only talking to people who use Quip. Um, I didn't actually go out and pitch it to anybody um, outside of that network. I didn't even really put together a pitch deck. I sort of just put together, I think it was like a two-page FAQ style document, and I passed that around to the people on Quib who expressed interest. Um, because from my perspective, I was like, well, you guys already use the product. You know exactly what it is. And throughout building the product, I had been really open about um, why I was building new features and what I was thinking, and I would always ask for feedback. Um, and so everything was kind of already out on the table. Um, so it was, yeah, a, a completely non-standard fundraise. Um, but I think otherwise, I mean, there's still a bunch of lessons that I learned about raising money. The, the main one is that it's really complicated. Um, but I think it's tough because in as a founder, you're only going to fundraise a handful of times, probably, um, unless you're one of these prolific serial entrepreneurs. Um, what Fingers crossed, but um, it's, it's pretty rare to meet somebody who's actually raised money themselves several times. And so you're inherently at a disadvantage when you're talking to people and negotiating with people who do it either a fair amount of the time or as their full-time job. And sometimes it's really difficult to actually understand what's going on and some of the nuances of how people interact. Um, it's just, it's, it's difficult sometimes. And so for me, the one thing that I had, which I was really lucky, and I always, if anybody's raising money, I always suggest they do the same, is I actually had somebody work with me sort of as a coach. 
And so I had somebody who um, had previously worked in VC, who had raised a few rounds of funding themselves, who had worked at venture-backed startups, who had helped other startups raise money to help me with my process. And I think it really is a process that you actually have to design and run, and it takes a lot of your time. But for me, that was extremely helpful. And there were a lot of times when, if I hadn't had that person, I would have had no idea what to do. The other thing that I usually recommend is I often tell new founders to find um, another founder who in the past six months has raised money for their startup. And that individual also works in the same product sort of category as you and their company is kind of sort of similar. Um, because I think the other thing that happens is there's some of these like market trends that happen that if you're not talking to somebody who's recently been in front of VCs, they can't give you a good understanding of what types of questions are being asked these days and what are the typical concerns that investors have about that type of company um, these days. And so I think that's, um, that's also really helpful. Um, and without those two things, yeah, I mean, I, I hear fundraising horror stories all the time. Um, from people who, I mean, people who are coming from like great incubators um, and people who have great teams and products with traction, but there's sort of some nuanced communications issues that can arise sometimes in negotiations with VCs where it, it's really helpful to have somebody who can help you um, see through those and not make some mistakes that might end up costing you like some really important leverage points um, in your own company. Yeah, that's huge. Those are two really, really solid uh, pieces of advice. Yeah, yeah. So besides raising money and with all your experience in the startup scene, what are some other lessons learned over the past few years? Sure. Um, many, many, many. <laughs> um, there's a lot of them. Um, again, I think for me, it's like everything is new since previous to this. I was, yeah, a nonprofit government climate change person. But um, I think one of the things that... I often heard, but I, I didn't really understand, um, is this idea of failure. Um, and I think a lot of people, there's sort of like the, the startup, fail fast, fail all the time, failing is great, um, banter that's thrown around. Um, and I think that it, it's mostly, it, it's fine, it's good. Um, but I think that the the rate of failure is, I think, something that's often not communicated. And I think when people talk about failure, a lot of people, when you're new, you sort of think, oh, they mean my company failing. And in fact, I, I don't think it actually means that. And I don't think that that's the good part of failing. I think clearly your company failing is a bad thing. Um, but it's more about the fact that when you start working on a startup, you are going, I mean, I fail at things like several things an hour. Like you literally are just like constantly failing at things and things constantly don't work um, all of the time. And so I think for me, when I realized that I was kind of like, oh, like this is not good. Um, and it was something, again, coming from like a government nonprofit background. I mean, things, you, you don't really have things that, that fail in that same way. And so that was something that I definitely had to quickly realize um, and quickly become okay with because I mean it's pretty intense when you're trying to do something even in like one day you're trying several different things and in that whole day nothing works and everything fails mm -hmm. and so sometimes those days are really hard but you have to over time um, become okay with with that and with that rate that high 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 rate of failure. 
So do you have any hilarious or unbelievable stories that you'd be able to share with us about Quib or yourself uh, during your time in the startup scene? I, I don't quite have hilarious <laughs> um, <laughs> or, un, or unbelievable. I feel like those are very high bars. Um, but um, I, I have a funny story that sometimes I tell people, which is about um, a Quip member who's one of my favorite Quip members. Um, <laughs> his name is uh, his name is Wu Sung An, and he um, he lives in Seattle now. He moved up to Seattle a couple years ago, um, and he does business development for the App Store at Amazon um, for games. And so Wu Sung, uh, he has, he's had like a very amazing career in games. Um, I think he worked at NCSoft um, somewhere in Asia. He worked at Nickelodeon um, for games, and yeah, now he's at Amazon. So when Wu Sung came into Quib, um, I knew that he had seen the messaging, he had read um, the landing page, he had signed up. And I'm assuming in his mind, he had some understanding of, oh, this product is valuable and interesting to me. I'm going to spend some of my valuable time using it. And I'm going to you know, share some content here. I'm going to find some great content. There are going to be some interactions with some really high caliber professionals like me. Um, and so he really took a bet on what this product would do. But what happened was, like I said, he didn't know, but actually nobody was there. Um, so he joined Quib and he started sharing a ton of really great content. And I was kind of like, oh crap, nobody's here. Nobody's going to see this. How do I, but like, this is really bad. Like my product, like I've made this promise to him. He's put some sort of like, he's invested some time. He now trusts my product and he's making a bet on it. And he's expecting something back that I at that time could not deliver. So Wusung, the problem was because he's a games professional, that's the type of content that he was sharing. He was sharing um, news about games partnerships and new publishers that were coming out with new content. Um, and in that, there were a bunch of um, metrics and some jargon that I literally just did not understand. Um, but I knew that I had to somehow make the product deliver on its promise. And so what I did was I spent maybe 45 minutes just randomly Googling um, and trying to understand what the article um, that Wusung had shared, what it was talking about and why it mattered and why it was interesting. And I tried to come up with some sort of coherent perspective on all of that. And then I wrote that as like a four sentence um, comment on the link that Wusung had shared. And yeah, it, I think the beginning, one of the things also that a lot of people um, sort of underestimate is at the beginning, there's a lot of um, manual labor that you have to do in terms of emailing people and writing stuff. And so that was something that, yeah, just, just took a ton of my time, but I knew that I had to do it. Um, and I, I really should have saved it. And I could go back to Wusung now and ask him, like, did I come across like I had any idea what I was talking about? <laughs> because I literally didn't know anything. Um, yeah, I'm sure it was a great, a great comment. So what can we expect from Quib yeah. and yourself in 2015? Yeah. Um, so one of for myself, one of the things that I always like to do in the summertime is to head back to Canada. Um, going back any other time of the years, I always seem to pick the airline that decides <laughs> not to fly for three days on my return date, um, and I get stranded um, in a snowstorm. Um, so I'm headed back um, to Halifax in a couple weeks and going through That's Toronto great. for a friend's wedding. Yeah. So that'll all be fun. Um, and it's getting a little bit too hot here in California for me anyway. Um, but otherwise, with respect to Quib, um, I am just about wrapping up um, the iOS app. 
So there is currently an iOS app in the store, um, but I will tell you it is not very good. So everybody, I would highly suggest not downloading it um, and instead going on the web. Um, but uh, yeah, I've been working, uh, I work with some designers here in San Francisco to do the redesign and I was really happy with that. Um, and then I also have a friend um, and his team uh, in Taiwan and they've been um, building the, the newest version. Um, so I've been playing around with the test flight version along with some testers. Um, so I'm excited to roll that out. Um, um, shortly. But then otherwise, in terms of, um, I've actually been working on a little side project um, that I'm really um, excited about. And it's it's sort of related to, it's related to Quib, but also related to, to my experience um, as, a, as a founder. Um, and so with a lot of, uh, I sort of think of Quib almost like a social modern industry journal. Um, and one of the um, most common revenue sources for industry journals is events and conferences. And so I've always sort of had that in the back of my mind as something that probably would make sense for Quib to do would be sort of something around the event space. And so I've done some um, like brunches with like maybe 40, 50 people, a couple of dinners where Quib members meet each other. Um, but otherwise, I think there's probably something more I could be doing around industry events. And then there's also the fact that um, as a woman working in tech as a founder, um, it's true that that's kind of rare. Um, and oftentimes it's me and a lot of men. Um, a lot of the people who use Quib are men. Um, even of my investors, um, because I went sort of this like um, equity crowdfunding route, I have a lot of investors. So I have, I think it's like 24 investors. So out of that entire group, I have one woman investor and she is basically my sister-in-law. So I kind of sort of don't count her. So with sort of thinking about those two things, I was like, okay, is there anything that I can do to sort of help this problem? The whole women in tech issue has been getting um, a lot of attention these days and it, it really is um, a problem. And so the idea is something around um, working on a directory of women tech professionals and uh, yeah, creating a directory where all of those people can be listed and partnering with tech industry events to help them find women speakers. Because the other thing that's happening is all of these event organizers really want to have more women speakers, but they work with their existing networks, they work with the networks of the speakers, um, and they have a lot of trouble um, getting a lot of women. At least that's, I, I've spoken to a handful of event organizers and that's what they're telling me. Um, so I started working on um, this directory where um, women could list themselves and say, this is what, this is my role, this is a company that I work at, and these are the topics that I'm able to, um, to talk about. And to me, it seems like a fairly um, high leverage way to get some um, change because I think when you have women as actual speakers and in the position of power at the events. Um, that's really meaningful. And so I'm excited to, to start working on that. And if anybody uh, wants to sign up, the idea, the broader idea was that I could actually create some sort of a pledge where event organizers could sign up to take a pledge to try to get more women speakers at their event. Um, and then I would partner with them and share this directory with them to help them reach their goals. And the goal is really high. So the goal is um, to have 50% women speakers at, um, at their events. And I've met, I mean, I've met so many really smart and accomplished women in the Bay Area that I, I don't think there's really a good excuse anymore to not have a handful of them together um, on stage at some of the most important and most available uh, representations of um, tech and startups in the Valley. 
Um, so if anybody's interested in finding out more about that, um, I've set up just a quick Twitter account. So it's 5050-5050 um, pledge on Twitter. Cool. That's awesome. Uh, we'll definitely have to give it a follow and uh, we'll link to it uh, with this episode of the podcast as well. So people can check it out. Yeah, sounds great. So, um, you know, given given all that, that you know, you've built into Quib and, and what you're doing now, where do you see some of the biggest opportunities for entrepreneurs? Are there any technologies or industries that, uh, you know, you're really interested in? I mean, I think that I'm definitely in one of the parts of the world where most of the craziest stuff um, is coming out of. And so, um, yeah, I definitely see some of that stuff. I'm, I mean, there's like VR. I have a Google Cardboard that I play around with sometimes. Um, so that's always fun. Drones. There's drones at the park that I go to with my dog all the time. Um, but um, one of the things that I think for me personally um, that I'm more excited about is simply the the spread of... I'm not really sure what to call it, but like the accessibility of technology, um, thinking about um, sort of myself as an example. And one of the reasons why I've been able to create Quib, um, so I'm literally the only employee of Quib. I have um, a couple part-time people who help me, um, but I have like extremely limited people resources at the moment. I mean, that would literally be impossible several years ago, a decade ago. And I think one of the things that's really important and one of the, the more important trends is this idea of the stack being being broken down and being abstracted and being more accessible to um, non-developers and non-engineers. So for me, for example, with Quib, um, so I use Bootstrap, uh, Heroku, SendGrid, uh, Intercom, Slack, Mixpanel, uh, Redis, uh, Optimizely, Stripe. I use all of these services that didn't exist several years ago, and that definitely didn't exist 10 years ago. And so I think that the availability and accessibility and interoperability of all of those tools just opens up the potential for people who previously didn't have access to and didn't think that they had the capacity to create products um, to be able to do that with with very little resources as as input. That's really cool. So are there any other apps, devices, or tools that you're currently using right now? And are there any books that you're currently reading or on your, or currently on your reading list? Yeah, so I, I'm pretty simple in that respect. Um, so beyond the, the apps that I mentioned that keep, um, that keep Quib up and running, I got a new laptop a couple, maybe two months ago, um, and I've, I've switched to all Google services. I don't have any more Microsoft Office or anything, um, nice. and that's been working pretty well. Yeah, I'm really happy to not have to open any more Word docs, uh, <laughs> so that's good. Um, but otherwise, I mean, I use um, a lot of, yeah, a lot of stuff just happens in Gmail, um, I use Asana. One product that I really like, I'll typically do surveys after um, after events that I do for Quip members. Um, and I th- the product is it's either called Type Form or t- I think it's Type Form. Yeah, Type Form. Um, yeah, so that's really great. I like that one. Um, I use Dropbox for some of the the files that I still have hanging around that I need to keep. Otherwise, um, in terms of recommendations. Um, so a movie that I watched when I first got here that I really enjoyed um, is called Something Ventured. And it's basically the origin story of venture capital. And so it starts in the valley and it looks at some of the original companies and some of the original firms and explains sort of why and how venture capital came to exist. Um, and it's really interesting. It does a little bit, um, you're able to sort of get some glimpses of why it is that the valley is the way it is and why it's such a great place to be um, 
for for startups and for tech companies. And then in terms of books, um, again, there's a couple that I read when I first got here that I thought were really great and really helpful um, as I started working on products. Um, so the first one, um, it's I think probably pretty standard on reading lists, is called Founders at Work. And it's written by the uh, YC partner, Jessica Livingston. And it's just a collection of stories from, uh, I think she just sits down and interviews um, founders of some of the more, um, the more famous tech companies about how they got started and what the early days were like of their companies. And so that's really, really interesting to hear those stories um, from those people. Um, and then another one that I really like that I actually just recommended last week is called The Monk and the Riddle. Um, and it's written by um, Randy Commissar. And he is, uh, I think he's a partner, yeah, he's a partner at KP. And it's interesting because I think a lot of the startup books that exist are very um, tactical and all about the business and what your strategy should look like and how to use the different tools and manage your team and all of this stuff. And his book is very much more about reflecting on yourself and why are you, uh, why are you pursuing this startup? Why are you pursuing this company? What what are your goals for yourself, and what will you be learning through this process? And so it's it's more of an um, it, it's re- I really liked it. It was really interesting. It's about um, and it's sort of tacked on to this broader um, story about a monk and a riddle. Um, and one of the things also that I really like about it is I'm a dog person, and he has some great um, analogies to to dogs um, throughout the book. Cool. Those are some good recommendations. We'll have to definitely check out. Yeah, sounds good. So do you have any last thoughts or personal models that you live by and you think others should you know, know about? With respect to starting a company and being a founder, I think one of the, one of the more important lessons that I sort of now apply more broadly that I learned from the second product that I worked on when I moved here is around the idea that you really, really have to like what you're working on. It's even better if you're a user and you also have to in some way respect or like the people who are using your product. Um, I, I know there's some people who who are okay without doing any of that stuff. They're okay building products for people that they don't like or that they never see or that they don't care about or don't understand. But over time I've learned that for me, that's a really important criteria that I that I need to check that I need to check off my checklist. Um, the, the previous product that I worked on was, um, it was built for, uh, it was kind of like an e-commerce tool. So it was for online merchants to help with a certain part of their sales process. And it was, it, it turned out that I was basically enabling a bunch of scammers. And it was horrible. And I really disliked all of the people that were <laughs> using it. And so it made it really hard to work on it because I was like, I don't care about any of you. You're all really bad people and I don't like you and I don't want to do anything that will make your scam easier for you to go out and hurt more people. And so I think that if you're going to work on something, I mean, it's going to take a long time. It's going to take years. Um, You have to make something that you really like, that you yourself enjoy using and that you can actually feel proud I mean, it it brings you some sort of sense of pride and satisfaction. And a lot of times, um, I mean, that's what makes it all worth it is actually um, building something that improves the lives of other people at scale. 
Yeah, for sure. That's 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 a great uh, so, so some great advice, uh, definitely. So I guess that's about it. Thanks so much for taking the time to speak with us today, Sandy. Really appreciate uh, your time and having you on the show. Of course. Thank you. Well, that's about it for this episode of Hack to Start. You can find all the important links beneath the show. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Hack to Start and sign up for our newsletter to know about all the latest episodes, behind the scenes content and more. Thanks for listening and see you next time.